welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, March 2nd, we are studying John chapter 11, verses 28 to 44. In today's text, Jesus goes to Lazarus's tomb, and Jesus shows that he is the resurrection and the life just as he has promised. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appold serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be on with you again, Tim. Thanks for having me. Give us some context as we get started, Pastor Appled. We're in the middle of chapter 11. A lot has happened beforehand. Some will happen, happen after. This is a key text in John's gospel. What should we know as we prepare to look at it? Yeah, one of Jesus' friends is dead. That's what we should know. Uh, his friend Lazarus is dead, and um, in some degree, it's kind of his fault, or so his uh, Lazarus's sisters think. Um, so Mary and Martha and Lazarus are all sisters and brothers, and um, the sisters had told Jesus in advance, hey, our brother Lazarus is sick, please come. Implication, come and heal him. And uh, Jesus intentionally tells his disciples, we're going to wait on this one, guys. And, uh, and then once Lazarus dies, then Jesus says, okay, now we're going to go. And so he gets there, and um, yesterday, probably on the, the recording, uh, you probably discussed the initial reaction of, um, I believe it's Martha who comes out first to meet Jesus. And so today we're going to hear not just Martha's reaction and her discussion with Jesus, but now Mary. And then we're going to see, okay, why did Jesus wait? Why didn't he come right away when his friend Lazarus was sick near to death? Is it because he didn't care? Is it because he didn't want to? Or does he have uh, some other motives in mind here? The way you started there, one of Jesus's friends is dead, is a stark thing to say. And you've you've raised a lot of very poignant issues from this text. Help us to get a handle on this at least a little bit. I know we're going to draw this out from the text that we have today, but one of Jesus' friends is dead. How how does that work? Yeah, you'd think, you know, if you're a friend of Jesus, uh, then you'd have like, you know, insider access to his power. And so nothing bad should happen to you, right? Um, I mean, he's been healing all kinds of people. He's shown his power, um, not in John's gospel, but we know in his ministry, he's raised other people from the dead. Remember the little girl, um, Talisa Kumi, uh, he raises her. He raised the, the young man, or I guess we don't know his age, but the, the son of the widow outside of the city of Nain. And so presumably, uh, you know, there's nothing Jesus can't do. Um, and yet he doesn't come when his friend is sick. So he'll do these things for, in some, in some ways, he'll do these things for total strangers. But then when his own friend is sick, um, why doesn't he come? You know, why, why did he wait? And he waited four good full days. Um, so you're going to hear later in the text that's going to say, you know, 
he stinks at this point. You know, it's it's not just that he died yesterday, but he's been he's good and dead. Okay, so Lazarus is good and dead. He is that way because Jesus has delayed. Martha has already responded to Jesus with that same accusation. We're going to talk a little bit about that today as we hear what her sister Mary says to Jesus. So again, this is right on the heels of Jesus' promise that he is the resurrection and the life. And then Jesus is going to meet Mary. So let's jump into the text. This is John 11, beginning at verse 28. When she, that's Martha, when Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That takes us through verse 37. We'll pause there. So I know it's a little bit farther into the text as we were reading there, Pastor Appold, but we've already brought up this accusation or statement that Mary gives to Jesus. It's in verse 32. Lord, if you yeah. had been here, my brother would not have died. That is pretty well what Martha said to Jesus in the previous text. So we've, we've called it an accusation. Is that what it is? How should we read it? That's the way I take it. Uh, and in some, I, I mean, I think she's right. You know, if Jesus had come, he would have healed Lazarus, right? Or, or we think that he would have. And I, I guess Jesus might have said no. Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not going to heal him. We're going to wait till after he dies, and then I'll then I'll heal him. Like we know he's going to do. I think most of our listeners. Hope I'm not. You know, given given the end away here, he's going to raise Lazarus. You know, uh, but but Mary's um, the difference between Mary and Martha here is that Martha said, yet even now I know that whatever you ask, God will do for you. And Mary, either because she's choked up, you know, it says that she's weeping, or because she just doesn't have that same hope, all she says is, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And the implication is, but you weren't, right? You weren't here. And so I, I take it as a, an accusation or a lament. She's laying this down at Jesus's feet. And she's finding at least some kind of, you know, there, there's a confession here of faith, right? It, it's a faithful lament. It's not an unfaithful one. Jesus, you could have done something, but you didn't. Hmm. And, there, you know, why or will you do something now? All of those things are left unspoken um, because of just the, uh, you know, the, the grief that Mary's in, the pain. You called it a faithful lament. Talk more about that, because I think, especially to our ears today, we hear both what Mary says in this text and in what Martha said in the previous text, and we wonder if that's really okay for us to talk to the Lord like that. So talk more about that idea of a faithful lament. Sure. Well, one way you know that it's that it's a lament that's coming from faith is her posture, right? The text says that she fell down at his feet. Um, she addresses him as teacher. So this is not 
Mary, you know, she's not distancing herself from Jesus with this. Um, she's not saying, um, you know, she's not chiding him in a way like as if she knows better, but she's pouring out her heart and she's pouring out this grief. And, and it is a confession of faith. Lord, you, you could have done something. Right. So there is that acknowledgement. Now, she needs something more. She needs to see. And this is, you know, why did Jesus wait? He waited precisely for this purpose so that he could show the sisters and he could show all of us that even death is not, you know, there is no limit to what Jesus can do, including even death. You know, she's got this kind of temporal limit. You know, as long as Jesus gets here before the last breath, we're, we're going to be okay. But once that last breath gets taken, then, you know, he can't do anything anymore. Nobody can bring somebody back from the dead except on the last day. That's kind of what Martha kind of put in there. Um, and Jesus is going to show them, no, I, I can even bring back from the dead. But it's a, it's a faithful lament. It's a faithful um, thing to do. It's similar to, to many of the Psalms. I think um, one of the ones that comes to mind here, I think Psalm 88 is like this where there's, there's not actually a request in that psalm. It's just pouring out this grief, pouring out this lament. And I think it's helpful for us to see, I mean, we don't want to be just complainers to the Lord. And yet there's lots of, um, there's lots of suffering in the life of a Christian. And it's okay, it's good, in fact, to come to Jesus and say, Lord, um, I'm suffering. Lord, you've laid this cross on me. Lord, there's a burden that's in some degree has come from your hand that's on me, right? Nothing that happens to us happens apart from God's hand. And however we want to parse that out, you know, we can get into the whole distinction between his good and gracious will or his permissive will. Um, but if he allows it, then that means he could have not allowed it. And this is a hard thing um, this is a hard thing to deal with because, you know, we want to we want to trace every good thing back to the Lord. But we also need to all trace our crosses and our burdens back to the Lord and say, OK, it, this has come upon me for for some reason. Sometimes I put it on myself. Um, sometimes it's just something that someone else has done to me. Um, and yet it has come from the Lord's hand. And, you know, it's OK to complain about those things or to to at least bring them before the Lord and lament um, our sufferings before him. So I think we see that example both from Mary and Martha. And as you pointed out, it's in the Psalms quite a bit. I think this is something that, again, in our context, we don't do as much or we're afraid to do it a little bit more to complain because we don't want to be seen as a complainer before God. But I think it's important. So what what is the importance of praying in this way, in lament, in complaint? What do we miss if we don't pray like that? Well, one, one thing is just to actually um, feel the grief of, um, you know, of sin's effect in the world, right? If we just treat sin as kind of a surface level thing, um, you know, we, we never think about it too much. Let's just kind of get on to the good things. Let's focus on the positives. Let's be optimistic. Um, let's be happy Christians. Um, you, you sometimes encounter this when, when people um, deal with death, right? And there's kind of this sense of we, we don't want to say the, those words. We don't want to put it too starkly. So this is where all the euphemisms come in, right? He kicked the bucket. He's passed on. And, and the, some of that language is 
faithful to scripture, right? Jesus calls death a slumber. So saying that a Christian has fallen asleep in crisis, that's wrong. But what it does is if that's how we always treat these things, then we're sort of gliding over the surface. And the laments show you that, uh, and something like this with Mary, show you that um, it's not wrong to feel these things. And uh, feeling them, putting them to words, um, this is what those lament psalms do, which then allows um, Jesus's healing or Jesus's raising of Lazarus or Jesus's promises to us now, right? We don't have the Lord immediately present with us, but his promises come in and they um, they get to the core and not just the surface level stuff. We talked about this, I think it was two episodes ago, when Jesus does call death asleep in this very chapter, when he refers to Lazarus's death. And yet at the same time, he then is very clear with his disciples what that means. Lazarus has died. And the necessity to put those two things together, that on the one hand, Christians do get to call death a sleep because of the victory that Christ has won and he will awaken us. But it's more than just a euphemism because we know that death is actually the enemy. It does, in fact, cause us grief. So that when we speak of death as a sleep, it becomes a, a confident assertion, not just sort of a, a glossing over pretending it's not there. And if, if we then, in these the next two texts, if we ignore the lamenting of it, then we are more prone just to treat it as a euphemism, just something we say without thinking about yeah. it, rather than actually receiving the full comfort that is ours in Christ. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, um, kicking the bucket is uh, is the euphemism. Sleeping in Christ is a Christian statement. That's a good distinction to make. <laughs> You're right about that. Um, I also think about this just in terms, you know, um, people will sometimes say to me, well, pastor, you know, I don't, I don't want to have a funeral. I want to have a celebration of life. And it's, I think it's just this, this, um, this kind of all prevailing, um, it's in the air around us, right? To be optimistic, to be positive. Uh, we want cheerful things. We want happy things. And a funeral sounds so unhappy, right? It sounds so serious. And, uh, but what I've always found is that using the actual funeral service and, and acknowledging these things um, provides serious happiness, right? It provides that serious joy that comes in from Christ. Whereas if you, if you try to um, kind of gloss over that, you also lose some of the comfort, some of the consolation that the gospel brings us. So we want to face these things head on. Um, we don't want to be, it's not a choice of being pessimistic or optimistic. You know, we want to face everything as a Christian. And one of the things that the Psalms do for us and, and texts like this is show us, you know, in your grief, you pour that out before the Lord. I mean, my goodness, Tim, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations, right? Um, so it's a good thing to do. Um, but, but we need to be shown how to do it because it, it's probably not something that most of us are comfortable doing because it, it can sound like, you know, am I, is this unbelief? Because it sounds almost like unbelief. Well, and I, I think, you know, the, the reason that it's not unbelief, as you pointed out in the case of Mary here, is her posture. She falls at Jesus' feet. She calls him Lord. She goes to him. And that's where mm -hmm. it's, it's not just complaining for complaining's sake. It's not just sort of rolling these thoughts around in your own mind, which I, I think would lead to despair. 
but it's actually bringing them to Jesus as the one who is, as you said, ultimately responsible in, in one way or another. He's the right one to take these matters to. If we don't, I mean, he, he knows about it anyway, so it's far better simply to speak them to him in prayer and let him answer you in his word rather than just try to deal with them on your own. Right. I think so. This, this um, also comes out sometimes with, uh, well, just um, pastor and congregation interactions. I mean, uh, it's, it's hard to actually say what we mean sometimes, especially when it's a serious matter. Um, and if, if we can't express our um, feelings or our griefs here, I, I don't use feeling in the sense of like, a, you know, just a, a fleeting thought, or a, but I mean, real honest struggles or, or burdens or anguishes, we have to be able to put those things into words so that we can see how God's word teaches us to express that and then also teaches us how he is going to heal it or how he is going to um, deal with that grief. So thinking about the grief that Mary is experiencing here, that she brings to Jesus, she goes to him because he has called her, as Martha has let Mary know, there is another group of people within this text that we, I think, meet. I'm not sure if we meet them for the first time here or if they were mentioned previously. But there are these mourners who are there with Mary, and the text says that they are consoling her, and yet they don't have the full consolation that Jesus has. So talk about this distinction that we see in the text or this, this contrast between the consolation that's being offered by her friends and the consolation she's going to receive from Jesus. Yeah, there's, there's probably a lot of people who are um, going there as kind of a shoulder to cry on, right? There, there's others who loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And so just like you have at any time there's a death um, in, a, in a congregation, there's lots of people who come and they, they give you a hug and they cry with you and they weep with you, uh, but they can't do anything beyond that. So there's kind of this, we're, we're here for you, we're with you, we, we've gone through this before too, we know how hard this is, and all of those things are, are good, and uh, there's some kind of consolation in that, right? Mary can see, okay, I'm not the only one this has happened to, uh, I'm not alone in my sadness, but also there's, it doesn't actually fix the problem, does it? Um, because sure all of the comfort that their presence can bring to mary they can't actually address the, the source of her grief which is the death of her brother and also not just the death of her brother but jesus's seeming um unattentiveness right mm -hmm. i i i asked him to come and he didn't come what i thought he was my friend i thought he loved me and so there, there's kind of those two things at work here in mary's grief Probably the one that's that's easier to recognize is just the sadness of the death of a brother. We've all had loved ones pass away, but there's also joined to that the inaction of the Lord. And we also know that too. How come when I prayed for what I thought was a good thing, you know, the health of my brother or the healing of my father or, you know, whatever it is, surely that's a good thing, right? How come I didn't receive what I asked for? And so um, Mary is struggling with both of those things. The Jews who are around her can console her to a degree, but they can't actually um, heal. 
And that's, that's a limitation that we all have. Um, I think of Jesus's, you know, when he teaches his disciples about prayer, he says, you know, um, if you have a neighbor who comes and he says, give me some bread and you don't have any, then you have to go to your neighbor next door. Right. And uh, that's so often the case in our lives. People come to us with some something that we really can't help. And Tim, you and I know this as pastors. Um, and so what we're always doing is going to Christ next door, going to the Father and saying, Lord, help me. Give me the right word to say here. Give me the right um, counsel from your word. Give me the right promise from your word. And then we bring that back to a person. But on my own, I can't, I can't help. And, and we're always tempted to say more than, than we can do. You know, it's going to be all right. It's going to get better. But I, I don't actually know that. Um, and, and I want to say that to a person. I can say it in the sense that the Lord works all things for the good of those who love him. But um, sometimes I think we, we, make, we, we write checks that we can't actually cash. Let's put it that way. And uh, so we're better to say, you know, the Lord is going to see you through this. The Lord is going to, going to help you. So talk talk a little bit more about that. I know this this may take us slightly away from this text, but it's related. When when we are the ones who are seeking to comfort someone else who has lost a loved one in Christ, how how much or how little should we say? What how do we form our words so that we offer real comfort rather than euphemisms or platitudes? Well, there's a whole range of things that uh, could be said. Um, and, and there's a range of things that are good to say, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, necess- it's not wrong to say, uh, oh, I've been through this before. And, and to be able to kind of be a voice of, um, here's how it happened for me. Um, I, I don't think that that's wrong. Um, I don't think that you're, you know, I don't think you're saying something you shouldn't say if you tell, uh, you know, when, I, when this happened to me, here's how I got through it. And here's what I found over time. It did get better. You know, time, that's kind of a common consolation. Time does, right, heal all wounds. Well, sort of true, sort of not true, right? Um, but I think that the sentiment is often accurate. So I, I don't want to be, a, a, I don't want to pick apart every word that people might say. Sure. But, what I, but I, what I would say is the best thing you can do, the best hope you can give is to point people to Jesus. Um, because he actually is the one who can heal all things, not just time. He actually is the one who makes all things okay, not just that it's going to work out, um, but that in Christ, there is a answer to these things. In Christ, there is hope for those who grieve, right? We don't grieve as those who have no hope. That means we do grieve, but we grieve as those who have the hope of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at Jesus' actions within this section then. This is one of those places in the scriptures where the evangelist gives us a little bit more in terms of emotion. A lot of times we hear about the actions of Jesus or the actions of the people in the text, but we don't always hear about what they're feeling or thinking. But here, St. John gives us some insight. He says, and let's see if I can find it there, it's in verse 33, He says there that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he, Jesus, was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Why why is Jesus deeply moved and greatly troubled here? Yeah, there's a there could be a number of reasons, and it might be helpful just to to think through those things um, and to think through other times where Jesus is 
grieved or Jesus is angry. The words there could be are, are very strong words in the Greek language that he's he's deeply troubled. He's deeply moved. He's upset by all this. So one of the things that comes out is, well, he maybe he's he is troubled by um, Mary's accusation, right? We've been talking about this lament that she's kind of put before him. And so maybe he feels the, you know, the quote unquote sting of what uh, Mary's saying. That's possible. I don't think that's right, but it's possible. Um, because if if that were the case, I don't think you would get such strong language. I don't think he would be deeply moved and troubled in his spirit. I think he might be, you know, insulted or or stung, but that language wouldn't be so powerful, right? Um, a second thing that might be going on is that he's upset by um, the the kind of consolation that they've been offering her. Maybe maybe some of their consolation was bad consolation. Maybe some of it was them saying to her, yeah, Jesus should have been here, but he wasn't. You know, maybe he he can't help. Maybe he doesn't want to help. You know, there may have been some of those um, kinds of friends around Mary who said, your hope was in the wrong thing. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have put all your trust in Jesus. See how he lets you down. See how he doesn't do anything. So maybe he's upset by that. Um, I think that the best, and, and that could be part of it, he's he's angered by the um, maybe bad counsel that she's getting. But I think probably the best way to understand this is the, the grief of a, um, a, you see something of the Lord's response to death. So death is the just judgment on sin. And yet our Lord does not pass that sentence on us. He doesn't give that verdict as someone who's saying, ha ha, let me give them what they deserve, right? Um, he knows that he does not, he, he is a loving judge, right? And so even when he gives that just sentence in the Garden of Eden um, and sees it here, he encounters it in his friends and he sees their grief, um, he himself feels for them. He feels for us. And so I, I would take it this way. Here is you get the um, kind of inside response of the Lord when sin's effect, death in the world, comes on his friends, on his disciples, and, and we might even generalize too on his creation. Um, he is troubled by it, and he's going to do something then about it. See, that's where, again, you get this difference. We, we all know that, you know that kind of feeling when we encounter death, but what we don't know is that there is what to do about it, you know, that we can actually, we, we can't bring anyone back from the dead, but Jesus can. And so he is not limited by this grief. It's not a, um, oh, I wish I could do something here, but I just can't. And so I'm, so, I'm just going to cry. You know, he actually, he weeps, he laments, and then he takes action. Yeah, we'll see more of that action from the Lord on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about John chapter 11 with Pastor David Apple this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 2nd. We're studying John chapter 11, verses 28 to 44 with Pastor David Appold. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus being troubled, deeply moved in his spirit. And in that same context, we have perhaps one of the most famous verses in the scriptures. I think it's particularly well-loved by confirmation students who don't want to memorize long verses of the Bible, a very short verse of the Bible. John 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. Talk more about Jesus' emotion here than the weeping that we're told he has in verse 35. Yeah, there's actually lots of people who cry in John's gospel. Um, Mary, Martha, Jesus, and then Mary Magdalene, maybe most famously at the tomb. Well, I don't know who's who's weeping is more famous, Jesus or Mary Magdalene? Probably Jesus. Probably. Uh, you know, shortest verse of the Bible. And uh, just think about tears for a minute here. Tears come um, when something really painful happens, right? You get hit in the nose and uh, the tears come whether you want them to or not, right? Um, when you see something deeply moving, it gets a hold of you. Um, tears are also often... Uh, when you're looking back on your life and you're kind of wishing it had all gone differently, right? You're seeing all the things that have happened and, and you want to go back, but you can't, right? So um, this is the way Mary, Magda Mary Magdalene is at the, in the garden. You know, tell me where my Lord is. I, I wish I could find him, but I can't. I wish I knew where his body was, but I can't get it. And I love what the angels say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And Jesus says the same thing. Why are you weeping? And, uh, you know, we don't have we don't have full audio there. So how exactly they said it, you know, um, are are they confused why she's weeping? Don't they know? Right. Why are they? Do they need more information? But that's not my text this morning. So I can't say too much on that. I just always love it. Tim. Um, but here it's Jesus's tears. OK, so we're going to rule out the fact that Jesus is weeping because he can't do anything about it. Um, and what we're going to say instead is what I think is even better, that Jesus is weeping in the same way we were talking about before the break. He sees his creatures, he sees his loved ones in pain, and he, and he shares their pain, but he also is going to be able to do something about it. So the same uh, Greek word uh, it is going to come up in the next chapter, now is my soul troubled, Jesus is going to say. And this is when he's looking to his own cross. So here he's looking to the death of his friend, and he's troubled. 
in chapter 12, he's going to be looking to his own death and he's going to be troubled. But there he's going to add in. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this reason that I came to die, to lay down my life. And so the same thing is, is we can bring back here. Jesus stares, faith, stares death full in the face. He, he feels, he shares in Mary's grief to some degree, Lazarus's um, death itself here. Uh, but he's going to now move through that. He's going to overcome it. And he's going to raise up Lazarus, just like in his own life. He's going to lay his life down, and then he's going to take it back up again. And with, with that, oh, man, here's where we can connect it to chapter 20. So then, why should you weep? You need not weep, Mary Magdalene. The Lord Jesus is risen. Why do you weep, Mary? Your brother Lazarus has died, but he will rise again. Right? All of these things get tied together so nicely in John's gospel. So talk more about the comfort that we have in seeing Jesus in John chapter 11 be moved in spirit, greatly troubled, even weeping, this grief that he has over the death of his people, knowing that he went through that same grief that we experience, what's the comfort in seeing Jesus like this? I think in part it's just that he is not, um, he is like us in, ev in every way, it says in Hebrews, except without sin. And so we have a high priest. This is, again, Hebrews language. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. He feels with us. Um, <clears throat> he feels for us. I think some of the Christmas hymns put this well. He shares in all our sadness. Um, I think that's once in Royal David City. Uh, but that's not just a poetic thing. That's a real thing. And that comes out in John chapter 11 here, um, that the love of the Lord Jesus for his people, he identifies with us, right? He, he puts his lot in with us. Um, he stands in with, with sinners. He stands in with those who mourn. He stands in with weepers. Um, and he says, blessed are the mourners, right? Um, because they will be consoled. And he's going to now uh, do that, cons that consolation. So we draw the comfort of knowing we're not alone. We have not just a friend we, whose shoulder we can cry on, but a friend um, the best of friends who can actually uh, take away the weeping. Uh, that's why I love that in John 20, woman, why are you weeping? And then when, he's, when he talks to her, her tears stop, right? Mary, that's, that's Jesus is the, the one who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Yeah, which we'll see in John's revelation in chapter seven, where he wipes away the tears for all eternity. We're going to see that here already in John 11. So where we left the text, there's some question. The Jews who are there with Mary recognize some of them that, yes, Jesus loved Lazarus, but some are asking a similar question to what Mary has been asking. Couldn't he have done something? Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? That's where we pick up the text now, moving into verse 38 of John chapter 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, 
and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's the rest of our text for today. That takes us through John 11, verse 44. So, Pastor Apple, tell us about the circumstances of Lazarus' burial and when Jesus gets there. It's been four days, as we already found out. He's in a cave. Martha's concerned about the odor that might be there. Take us into some of those outward circumstances. Yeah, uh, so this is this shows you a little bit of the burial practices that were common in those days. Um, they would bury a body in a cave, and then the flesh would all kind of rot away. Here's a happy thought for you, right, Tim? Um, and as it did, it would stink, and eventually everything would rot away, and you could go into the cave then, and you could collect the bones. Just the bones would be left. And if if any of our listeners have ever seen, like, they were called ossuaries, an ossuary box, that was to hold the bones. And so the same cave could be used multiple times for family members. Um, you get a mention of this all the way back in Abraham's life where he bought a burial cave. Um, and so it could be used by successive generations. Uh, but here, that process hasn't obviously has not gone on long enough. It's gone on long enough that the odor is going to be intense. Um, no matter how much myrrh, no matter how much aloe, has been applied to Lazarus, it's going to be bad um, when you open up that tomb. And the point is, I said before, he's good and dead. Um, this, I mean, that, that really just drives the point home, I think. He's, he's dead and he's rotting. He's decaying. He's, he's in corruption. Um, and Jesus is going to undo. He's going to have to undo all of that. And he's going to. He does, he does undo all that. Yeah. Even, the, even the stench is going to be driven away. That's right. That's right. So, and as you were talking about the the typical burial practices that a cave could be reused, as a brief aside, that's one reason why it is important that Jesus is buried in a new or an unused tomb, so that if the tomb would show up empty, there's only one body that could be missing, the body of Jesus. Just sure. as a, a brief aside for when we get there, that's that is an important detail to keep in mind from the burial account of our Lord. Here we've got Lazarus who's buried in a tomb. Jesus commands, take away the stone. Martha is concerned again about the odor. She's being quite realistic. Jesus speaks to her. And, you know, when we looked at what he said to her previously in the last section that we looked at, he spoke very comforting words to her. Your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Here he seems a little stronger with his language. Weren't you listening? Sort of is the, the impression I get. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What is, what is Jesus reminding Martha of there? What does he mean by the glory of God? Well, that he's going to raise his, that he's going to raise Lazarus, and glory is a term that's uh, heavily prevalent in John's Gospel. We have seen glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, and Jesus connects that His glory with the Father's glory with the life of Lazarus. I think that's an important point to make. Um, the glory of God is not just something that you know. Wow, He's so wonderful that we is partly that. Um, that we recognize how how great and majestic and powerful the the Hebrew word is weightiness. There's a weightiness or a gravity to the Lord, but his his gravity, his weight, um, is also then imparted to his creatures. And so the glory of God. This is a famous uh, saying from one of the church fathers named Saint Irenaeus. The glory of God is the living man or a man fully alive. 
um, is, is sometimes how it's translated, that God, God's glory is seen when he saves his people from death. Um, that's the gospel, right? Um, the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, when those things are given to us, we see the glory of God and we know him for who he is. So upon this, they take the stone away as Jesus has commanded. Jesus then lifts up his eyes and he prays. It's perhaps a strange prayer. It's not like a prayer that, say, one of the prophets might have prayed. I can't remember if it's Elijah <laughs> or Elisha, who you know, are asking the Lord to raise the, the one who has died. It, it's a, an odd prayer. What, what does Jesus pray? Why does he pray in this way? Yeah, it almost sounds like this, doesn't it, Tim? Like, okay, Father, um, I don't really need to say anything to you, <laughs> but I'm just going to do this so that everybody else sees me praying to right. you. That's right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that is the point, is that all through his ministry, Jesus was manifesting the Father, right? Um, I and the Father are one. That's incredible language in John's gospel. And it's it's all over the place in John. You know, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear him saying. I only work what he has worked. So the unity between the father and the son is reinforced here that Jesus is not, uh, maybe we can put it this way. Jesus isn't like uh, a, a get around of the father, right? We, he's not sneaking behind the father's back like, well, you know, God wants Lazarus dead, but I'm going to get, I'm going to, you know, just do this little miracle on my own. Um, when we see Jesus, we see the father. And so the weeping of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the raising of Lazarus done by Jesus um, is like a transparency. And through that, through all of Jesus's ministry, we see also the father behind him. And that's important. It's a Trinitarian point, but um, the works of the Son reveal the Father. And so if you have the Son, you have the Father, right? It's, it's always a package deal. And I think this prayer here, you know, in kind of in a funny way, we pointed out here, but, but in a very um, profound way shows that unity of the Son's works and the Father's works. And so in, in this context, we've been talking about, you know, what does it mean that Lazarus is Jesus' friend? And so far, Lazarus is dead, but Jesus, as the friend of Lazarus, is about to do something spectacular for him. So this prayer to the Father, then, would be a reminder that if you have Jesus as your friend, you also have the Father as your friend. And and yeah. as you as you said, the, the love that Jesus has isn't sort of... A, like, well, God doesn't really like you, but I do, so don't worry. In fact, when you realize that Jesus is your friend, that Jesus loves you, then you you have this confidence that the Father is your friend and he loves you too. Yeah, sometimes we can uh, kind of talk ourselves into a corner or in a way that it makes it sound like Jesus saves us from God. And um, that's just not true. Um, it Sometimes scripture does talk this way. Uh, we are saved from the Father's wrath. Um, Jesus reconciles us to the Father, and he reconciles the Father to us. You know, both ways of speaking are appropriate. Um, but it, we want to know that not only do we have Jesus, but we have the Father um, who loves us, and he sent his Son. And um, throughout John's Gospel especially, this, uh, this is um, from the, the get-go, um, you know, no one has ever seen God, the Father, except God the Son, and he has made him known. The Son makes the Father known. So 
um, the Spirit shows us Jesus, who shows us the Father. That's the Trinitarian way. And when you have one, you have all three. And so you don't have to think like, well, I'm in good with Jesus, but man, I don't know about his father. Sometimes that's how our friendships go on earth, right? Um, my buddies, my dad doesn't always like my buddies because, you know, some of them are losers. Sorry, guys, it's true. Um, but with Jesus and his father, there is perfect agreement that, you know, that perfect Trinitarian indwelling is the technical term. Uh, but here you can see it in his prayer. Okay, so Jesus is reinforcing the connection that he has with his father through this prayer. He also, as he says at the end of the prayer, he also desires that people seeing this would believe that the father sent him. So this this goal of faith in Jesus as the one sent by the father is included as a part of this prayer. And then in verse 43 and into 44, this is where we get to the actual raising. So talk about how Jesus actually does the deed here. Yes. Um, Jesus had many ways of healing people, right? Um, sometimes fingers in the ear, sometimes a hand, sometimes uh, spit on the ground and mud in the eyes, um, sometimes just a word. And that's what we get here. He calls out with a loud voice. There's kind of this emphasis on his voice, um, which ties back in with some of the things he said before, right? My sheep hear my voice and they know me. Um, all the way back in chapter five, he said, the hour is coming when those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the son of man and will rise. Okay, well, here we go. Um, it's the beginning of that hour. And so it's the voice of Jesus. It's the word of Jesus that has power over death and can call someone out of the tomb. Um, and, you know, why didn't he go in himself and, uh, you know, you mentioned Elijah a minute ago when Elijah raises a young man. I think it's Elijah and not Elisha. There's a there's like a elaborate kind of ritual that we're not really told why he stretches himself out three times over the boy. Um, here again, we don't we don't know why didn't Jesus go in and touch? He could have. That's how he did it with the um, the little girl and with the the widow's son at Nain. He actually touches them and raises them. But here it's just a command. It's just a voice. And I think in, in good Lutheran fashion, what we would want to point out here is that where the word of Jesus is, where the voice of Jesus is heard, uh, it imparts life. So it's a command that he gives to Lazarus. If, we're, if we have too wooden of an understanding here of law and gospel, you know, well, it's law, right? It's an imperative. He said, come out. Um, yes, that's true, but it's a creative word. And so his word of command is, um, you know, it's gospel in, in that sense that where it imparts what it commands. Yeah. In, in a, in just a, about a chapter from now at the end of John 12, Jesus will be speaking about his father and he says, I know that his commandment is eternal life. So already ahead of time, we see Jesus do that. The Father's commandment, because we know these words are coming from the Father. Jesus has been sent from him. These words actually impart what they say. So we, yeah, we have a picture here of what will happen for all of us on the last day, even a picture of, of what happens for us in terms of, of conversion. When Christ calls us to faith, he does this through his creative word that creates faith. By that word, Lazarus comes out. Let's go to verse 44. The man who had yeah. died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So the word of Jesus was effective in verse 44. But then there's these notes about his bindings, what he's wrapped with, and the command now from Jesus to take those off and let him go. Why the, why the emphasis on this before we leave Lazarus behind? Yeah, I love the attention to the burial cloths. Again, it, it, so much that's in here points forward and, and is going to tie in with Jesus' own death and burial and the, the weeping of another Mary later on. Um, and so you, you get that weird notice in the, in the Easter gospel account where Jesus has folded his clothes and even the, you know, everything is all folded up. Well, something like that is going on here too, right? Um, Jesus is not satisfied with just bringing Lazarus back to life, apparently. He also wants him free from these, the burial garments. And so it, it's, I, I mentioned the stench being driven away. I, I almost wish that there was a note here. Like, don't you wish that it said, um, and he smelled fresh and clean, you know? Um, but we have no mention of the, the scent of Lazarus after this. I believe that he smelled good, okay? Um, but what we do have evidence for is Jesus saying, not even the death clothes should remain on him. So it's, in a way, it's like everything associated with death has to be taken off of Lazarus. He has to be unbound. And I think that that um, connects powerfully with just our experience of death as this. It is something that binds us, that... Um, wraps us up in its arms. You think of a lot of the language in the Psalms, the snares of death confronted me, um, the, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. It's like this power that wants to hold us down. And the gospel sets us free from the fear of death. And on the last day, we will be set free from every aspect of death, um, corruption, mortality, perishability, those things will all be gone. Uh, but for now, it's just that unbinding in this, uh, what the, the book of Revelation calls kind of the first resurrection kind of ways that we, we live without the fear of death any longer. Um, and just so it doesn't have, uh, it, it can't hold us. So talk more about the way that we see in this crucial text in John's gospel, a preview of what's going to happen to Jesus. You mentioned the way the grave cloths are, are folded nicely in Jesus' tomb. Talk about those parallels, the way that this prefigures, foreshadows what's going to happen that we see, again, to the much greater degree when the Lord rises at the end of the gospel. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, Lazarus is pretty cool, but Jesus is way cooler, right? So <laughs> Lazarus, somebody else has to take his, you know, there he rises, but he's still got, you know, kind of death around him. Um, maybe some of some of our listeners may have heard pastors kind of try to kind of do a little bit of shock value here, like, Lazarus died again, and he did, you know, so the raising of Lazarus is not the same as the, the, the rising of Jesus. Jesus's resurrection puts death in the rearview mirror. Lazarus's resurrection is back again, but in the same way that he was before. Um, when Jesus rises, it's going to be uh, a, pro a progression. There is an elevation, there is a transformation, a glorification. And so he doesn't need somebody else to unwrap him. He's going to, you know, he's going to wrap death up as if he's done with it forever because he is. And so he folds the clothes. He puts the cloth back in its place and he says, I'm not going to have any need of these things anymore. Okay. Well, Ezraus is still going to need burial cloths later, um, but Jesus doesn't. And 
So the, the comparison between Lazarus's rising and Jesus's is from good to great or from temporary to permanent. And uh, a good way to talk about that is just thinking of it in terms of Jesus rises uh, in glory. He was in a state of humiliation. He will be in his state of exaltation um, when he rises. And so will we. Right? That's, the, that's always the joy of Easter. Um, Jesus is risen and we shall arise like him, right? We, we won't just have Lazarus's experience. We'll have the better one on the last day when we rise to never need burial cloths again. Yeah, so what we see happen to Lazarus here foreshadows what happens to Jesus in the greater way on Easter and that resurrection which we await on the last day when the grave claws will be left behind forever and we will have that life that has no end, the life that is immortal and incorruptible. Pastor Apple, we have about two minutes left on the morning. Help us to wrap things up on our text, everything that happens with Lazarus and the comfort that we have from John chapter 11. Well, Lazarus will come back into the story in a little bit, and it's kind of in a, in a sad way, right? Um, this sign was sort of the ultimate sign. You know, the first of Jesus' signs, water into wine. Now this is going to be the last of his signs, and it's the one that everyone's going to remember. Um, because when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, Lazarus is with him. And everybody's still talking about this when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And that actually draws the ire of his enemies. And they hate not only Jesus, but Lazarus too. And they want to, because everybody's talking about Jesus and Lazarus, Jesus and Lazarus. So if they want to take down Jesus, they got to get Lazarus too. Um, so it will lead into his death and resurrection, which is as it should be. Because the whole point here is that Jesus rescues from death, and he rescues from death in a permanent way. What he did for Lazarus is temporary, and we're thankful for that. Certainly, his sisters were overjoyed. Um, they see that Jesus has power over death, um, but there is something even better in store. And so through his own death and resurrection, he's going to destroy the power of death and bring life to light. Pastor David Appold is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 11, verses 28 to 44. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. Happy to be with you, Tim. Thank you. Christ Jesus lay in death-strong bands, just as Lazarus lay in death-strong bands. The Lord Jesus brought Lazarus out of those grave cloths, and now Jesus has come out of his own grave claws forevermore, risen to life that has no end, promising the same to you and to me and all who trust in him in the resurrection on the last day. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, we would love to hear from you. You can send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also go to your favorite app store and download the KFUO app and use the open mic feature to send a 60-second message to us. Either way, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.